0: Welcome to episode 16 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. In San Francisco, I'm Nathan Fox. Uh, Ben Olson won't be joining this show. Like last show, it's going to be a a one-on-one tutoring session with me and a student named Ebony in Dallas, Texas. In this show, which was recorded in two different parts, you'll hear us talking big picture LSAT strategies and then all the way down to... Uh, individual LSAT logical reasoning questions. Hope you enjoy it. You can reach me at Nathan at foxlsat.com. And would really love to hear what you think about the show. Thank you. All right, Ebony, so we're gonna work a little bit today on logical reasoning questions. You've done the June 2007 test and you have a few questions from section two. The cool thing about the June 2007 test is that you can Google it and it's available for free and we're allowed to talk about it on the podcast so we can actually read the question and really like dive in deep on that. But first I wanted to get an update on a couple of things. Um, I've been excited today thinking about getting to talk to you this afternoon because you've improved so much um, already so quickly. So you said you've gone from 152 to 157 already? So what do you think your success is due to so far?
1: Um, just timing strategies. Um,
0: and when you say timing, what do you mean?
1: I think just um, looking at the logical reasoning sections differently instead of looking at it as a section of 25, I look at it as a section of 20. So when I'm halfway through, Like with my time, I don't look at it like I'm halfway through my time and I still have 15 questions left. I say I still have 10 questions left and I don't even consider the last five questions. I just go ahead straight from the beginning. I go ahead and bubble those in with E.
0: Well, that warms my heart, Ebony. I'm a bit of a nerd, obviously, (laughs) but uh, that right there was spoken perfectly. Um, I love the idea that you're just thinking of it as a 20 question section. That's not to say that you're always going to think of it as a 20 question section, but for today, to get to 160, we need to think of it as a 20 question section. So that is awesome. We talked a lot about that last time. Um, last time was uh, almost a bit confrontational a couple times during our conversation, I thought. I mean, I had a smile on my face the whole way, but I felt like I was having a hard time convincing you of a few things. Um then I got an email from you right after we got done talking and I got an email saying, Hey, you know what? I think I get it. And then you wrote me five bullet points. You said, here's what I'm going to do. Number one, don't skip early questions. Number two, get a book of more recent tests. So that's the volume five book of the recent LSATs. Number three, uh, use old tests and double up on the logic games practice. Number four, slow down at the end and focus on accuracy, even if you don't finish the section. That's awesome. And then number five, you said, skip the science reading comprehension passage if you need to. And uh, I was like, I was so happy to get that email because it was just, it really summed up everything that we talked about perfectly. And it, it just made me happy to know that I was getting through to you. And then I got an email a few days later saying that you had scored a 157 on your most recent practice test, and you were excited and you were really getting it. So anyway, I wanna just say congratulations, and it's been awesome working with you so far. Well,
1: thank you. Are
0: you excited? I mean, you should be excited, I think.
1: I am excited. I'm in the middle. I actually was taking a recent practice test right before you called, and so I haven't scored the last section, but I did much better on games than that
0: one. Oh, cool. It's motivating, right? Like a little bit of success makes you hungry for more success, so that's fantastic.
1: It is. Yes, I agree.
0: Um, you said that you moved just to, to break it down. Give me the numbers again on logical reasoning and reading comprehension.
1: Oh, on logical reasoning, I went from a 32
0: to 40 that's fantastic
1: and then on reading comprehension i went from 16 to 21
0: and just to remind the listener when you got 32 correct how many questions had you attempted
1: most of them i think
0: most if not all of them i thought you said
1: i did like 22 23
0: you skipped a few but you finished the section i think yeah and then on when you got 40 correct, you really ran out of time and you actually didn't do a lot of the questions, right? Or you didn't do a few of the questions at the end of each section? I
1: think in one section I got to 19 and one section I got to 20 or something See, like that. See, now
0: that's amazing. So listen to that for the listeners. You, you did 19 questions in one section and you did 20 questions in the other section, but you got 40 correct? Yes. How's that happen?
1: Well, <laughs> I didn't miss that many. Right. Did attempt and
0: then I mean when you guess you have a at least a one in a five chance right and the important part there is that you just didn't miss many of the questions that you actually did so you went from very low accuracy you know you went from something like 65 percent or 70 percent accuracy up to really almost a hundred percent accuracy and then you randomly guess on the ones that you didn't have time to finish and you still get you know one or two of those right and you end up with a uh, really dramatic improvement in your score. I guess same thing happened on reading comprehension, right? Yes. What were the numbers there? For
1: reading comprehension, I started out with 16 and then I ended up with
0: 21. And again there with reading comprehension, I believe you said that you 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 like ran out of time on the fourth passage or something like that on the first attempt with the uh, 16 points, correct? Is that right? Yes. Okay, and then when you, did 20, when you got 21 correct, your strategy was different.
1: Yeah, when I got 21 correct, I think the science passage was like the second passage. And when I got to it, <laughs> I just skipped it and bubbled in the questions of E, and it made me so happy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's great, right? I mean,
1: you... Because you... usually when you get a difficult passage and you know you bombed it, you just feel like I just wasted my time and I just
0: screwed up my whole yeah. score. Yeah. So I don't advocate for a whole lot of skipping. But again, on the reading comprehension, if you have determined that you're going to get more points correct if you just do three passages rather than trying to do all four, um, you then get to pick and choose or at least you get to skip one passage if there's some passage you don't like. So for a lot of people out there, it's going to be the science passage. For me, it would be more like something about poetry or something, but um, everybody's got some topic that they really don't like, and rather than let that topic completely take the wind out of your sails, you were able to just say, oh, skip it. And you actually took encouragement from it. It actually made you happy to skip it.
1: Yes, because I was like, I can devote my time to things that I know I will do well at
0: your confidence continues to build and you go on to the third and fourth passage and you end up with 21 questions correct in the section, which is just fantastic. I mean, that's a, that's a really great improvement there. So magically you're go from 152 to 157 and that's a big five points there. You know, that changes your candidacy dramatically.
1: That I went from getting like 60 correct to getting like 70 correct. And just to be clear, this was not from studying, because when I took the next test, I was waiting, I was ordering my books, and I didn't really have any current material to study. So I was, well, I don't want to just not do anything, let me take a practice test. But from the time that I took that first test and that second test, I didn't really study. So that was all just from... Being more
0: strategic. Yeah, it was it was just from applying a, a more productive strategy for you. So that's that's fantastic. I would expect that to be a sustainable gain. There will be ups and downs still. You know, you're going to do better and worse on some tests. But I do think that that was a dramatic enough shift in your strategy that it led to an immediately higher score. And I think you should expect that that'll continue. You'll continue to study, of course. You'll continue to work hard. And the hard work will continue to grind out more and more points. Um, but that was a nice little five point uh, boost we were able to get you. Just to give you a little bit of perspective, 152, um, over the last four years of data, 152 is a uh, 51.6th percentile score. So better than 51.6% of all the people who take the test. And a 157, do you know the percentile, Ebony? Do you want to take a guess? Uh, I think it's at
1: 70, Well, I
0: looked. Yeah, that's right, 70.8 percentile for a 157. So you go from the 52nd percentile to the 71st percentile. Uh, that means that that five points that you just got moves you past 20% of all test takers. It moves you past 20% of all the candidates who are applying for law school. I mean, imagine if all you know the thousands of people were lined up to get into law school, your five points that you just got just put you past like thousands of uh, applicants. If you look at the schools, if you look at the schools that you're interested in applying to and you look at their LSAT uh, medians and 25th percentiles and 75th percentiles, you'll see that 152 is one kind of a candidate and 157 is an entirely different kind of a candidate because at some schools, 157 is going to be above the 75th percentile while 152 is more like the 25th percentile. So, anyway, congratulations, and you have really, you know, you really have changed your future just by those five points. Um, now it's the sky's the limit, I guess. Let's see how many more we can get you.
1: Um, can I just say one?
0: Thing? Sure, yeah.
1: For people who have test anxiety, I definitely recommend this timing strategy because I feel like the timing on the LSAT is one of the things that severely compounds test anxiety.
0: Yeah, good point
1: that you struggle with, you should definitely just consider it and experiment it when you're, when you're learning and when
0: you're practicing. That's awesome. I haven't made that connection, but I think that really is sensible. Um, if you have the, more of like an abundance mentality as you're taking the test, you know, I don't have a shortage of time. I have plenty of time. I'm, I'm going to answer many of these questions and I'm going to answer all of them correctly or most of them correctly and I'm going to get plenty of points and there's nothing to freak out about. If I run out of time, sure, I'm planning on running out of time. There's nothing to worry about. Um, That's a good point, Ebony, thank you for that. So um, two things, one is logic games. You say you haven't improved much on the logic games. So um, what's your plan there?
1: My plan for logic games, well, I haven't, I didn't improve much from the first test to the second test. The last one I took, I did do one perfect game, and then I, I missed one on the
0: other game. Okay, great.
1: So, I mean, my overall score didn't improve, but if you if I'm looking at it from a perspective of how many games did I do, how many did I miss per game, I'm, I'm doing better.
0: Okay, that's that's great, and I didn't mean to say that you haven't improved at all. I just mean that your score hasn't improved. Uh, taken a big jump there and it is now that that you take a you took a big jump in logical reasoning and a big jump in reading comprehension and games all of a sudden is now like this glaring weakness um, relative to the rest of your score right your game score now looks uh, poor but it actually i would look at that as a big opportunity because anyone who can score 21 on the reading comprehension can definitely score 15 or 16 or even more on the logic games people who read well If they practice the logic games, we'll start to do well on the logic games. It's as simple as that. So my recipe for you there, Ebony, and it was in your email that you sent to me, was simply just do lots of games. Okay? Okay. Awesome. So um, get books of old tests, you know, get tests as cheaply as you can find them and just do the games games over and over and over if you can, um, because you'll learn how to make all the connections. You'll be able to do the games faster. Um, so repetition is going to be key uh, to those games and you will make like big leaps in the games just from practicing them. Um, the other thing that we're going to talk about today is logical reasoning. So you have three logical reasoning questions. I'm not sure if we'll have time to get through all three of them, but we're talking about the June, 2007 LSAT section number two. So what questions did you have? Um,
1: I have a question about 16.
0: Okay. So first I'm going to read the question, um, Section 2 from the June 2007 LSAT, number 17. This is the one where Taylor and Sandra are talking to each other? Yes. Okay. Taylor says, researchers at a local university claim that 61% of the information transferred during a conversation is communicated through nonverbal signals. Researchers claim this, according to Taylor. So Taylor seems like maybe he disagrees uh, because he uses the word claim. And then sure enough, he says, but this claim like all such mathematically precise claims, is suspect because claims of such exactitude could never be established by science. Hmm, what do we think about that? I like to try to agree or disagree with Taylor before I even read Sandra's argument. Taylor is saying, I don't think you're right about the 61% nonverbal. The reason why Taylor objects is very odd, I find. He presents what seems to be a gigantic premise here, a very bold premise. All mathematically precise claims are suspect. Why? Because no mathematically precise claims can be established by science. Wow. Um, what do you think about that, Ebony?
1: Well, I, I just think that's false. <laughs> but, <laughs> But I thought, I think when I read this, I thought that he was talking about nonverbal, like, nonverbal cues. Like, I didn't think that he was saying, like, all of chemistry can't be exact, all of physics can't be exact.
0: Well, he, he actually presents a very bold premise, though, doesn't he? I mean, the beginning of his second sentence, he says, but this claim is suspect. And I think that's the conclusion of the argument, is this claim is suspect. But... The reason why he says this claim is suspect is because he says claims of such exactitude, and he's he means all claims. He he specifically says all mathematically precise claims could never be established by science. I don't think that's true in real life. I think that science can prove a lot of things mathematically precisely. I think that science knows what pi is to you know, millions of decimal points. I think that science knows what acceleration due to gravity is by to lots of decimal points to, to to quite a high degree of precision. We were able to launch a rocket to the moon and to do that, we needed to be able to do things quite precisely. So Taylor seems to be presenting a premise which I just don't think is true in real life. That's not the point really, but the point is, I want to understand exactly what Taylor is saying. Okay, so now I'm going to move on to Sandra. Sandra says, while precision is unobtainable in many areas of life, it is commonplace in other areas of life. Many scientific disciplines obtain extremely precise results, which should not be doubted merely because of their precision. So there, Sandra definitely disagrees with Taylor's premise. Taylor's premise was all mathematically precise claims are suspect. Sandra says, no, no, you shouldn't doubt these results just because of they are precise. The question now says, the statements above provide the most support for holding that Sandra would disagree with Taylor about which one of the following statements. What's your strategy, Ebony, for this type of a question? What, what are you looking for? Again, for the listener, we're on question 16 from section 2 of the June 2007 LSAT, and if you just Google June 2007 LSAT, you'll find it.
1: Um. I usually first look at um, what they agree on and then I try to look at what they disagree
0: on. Interesting. How, where did you learn that strategy?
1: I just seemed like it made sense. <laughs>
0: okay.
1: I didn't learn it anywhere.
0: Okay. Um, that wouldn't be what I would do. What I would do is I would, I know they they disagree. What I would ask here is, well, are they disagreeing about their conclusion Or are they disagreeing about the evidence, or are they disagreeing about both? Because that's, in my experience, that's what these questions tend to boil down to. Sometimes they disagree on the evidence and they disagree on the conclusion. And I think that's what happened here. I think Taylor said, hey, all mathematically precise claims are suspect, therefore this particular claim is suspect. And Sandra says, wait a minute, I disagree with your premise. And if she disagrees with his premise that way, I think she also, by implication, is disagreeing with his conclusion. So I think Sandra has disagreed with Taylor's premise and basically his whole argument. But in other cases, they might have agreed on the evidence and then arrived at a different conclusion. And in still other arguments, they might have disagreed on the evidence, but nonetheless arrived at the same conclusion by different means. So I guess maybe try that next time you do a question like this is start, start, start trying to predict well, is it just the evidence that they're arguing about or is it just the conclusion or is it both the evidence and the conclusion?
1: Okay.
0: All right. So I think it's both. Let me see if I can find the answer. A says, research might reveal that 61% of the information taken in during a conversation is communicated through nonverbal signals. Hmm. Taylor would be very suspect about that.
1: Well, I cross that off. Okay. Just because I think that that's the first thing she says is that the research reveals 61%. She's not saying she agrees with it, but she's saying that's what the research said.
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, I'm not totally sure that I buy that. Uh, just because Taylor said researchers claim that 61% of the information is communicated through nonverbal signals, not research has revealed. I, there's a difference in tone there, which is if you're saying claim, it's like, and I don't believe it. If you're saying reveal, it's like, hey, here's this secret that's been revealed. Isn't this interesting? Does that make sense at all?
1: It does make sense that there's a different tone. And See, when I said it, I was like, I mean, to me, research reveals a lot of stuff that I think is bull. There's a bunch of people who, just, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. I just think in this case, reveal might mean prove or, you know, research reveal. I think that might mean research might show, which I think on the LSAT would mean research might prove that a 61 per, that 61% of the information taken in is nonverbal. And if, if it said research might prove, I think Taylor would say, no, research cannot prove that because science cannot prove that. And Sandra might be able to, might, might say, well, wait, no, I, science can prove things to, to that degree of accuracy. So I could see them disagreeing on A. I don't, love, I don't love it because Sandra didn't seem to take such a specific position about nonverbal communication. I mean, she didn't actually even address the, the, the one study, the one claim that Taylor started off talking about. She really just disagreed with his evidence, I guess. But I could see them disagreeing on A. So I would read then B, C, D, and E. Um, I don't have the answers in front of me, so I'm going to look at all of them. B says, it is possible to determine whether 61% of the information taken in during a conversation is communicated through nonverbal signals. Um, That one feels like a trap too. Taylor would definitely say no to that because Taylor says science just can't get to anything like that, science can't get to that degree of accuracy, but again, Sandra hasn't actually taken a position on whether science would be able to do this in the particular context of nonverbal signals, so that's my objection to A as well. So, A and B are now looking kind of similar, so I kind of don't like either one of them. C says. The study of verbal and nonverbal communication is an area where one cannot expect great precision in one's research results. What? I don't know that either of them were talking about that D some sciences can yield mathematically precise results that are not inherently suspect. I think that has to be the answer. Taylor clearly says no to D Taylor Taylor says, Nope. There are no sciences that can yield mathematically precise results. And Sandra says, wait, no, yes they can. They often do. So because Taylor says no to D and Sandra says yes, I think I have to pick D here. Uh, In real life I would read E just to be sure, but I think maybe I'll save some time and not do that. What, uh, What do you think about that? What did you pick? Is D the answer? D
1: is the answer. Okay,
0: and what did you pick?
1: I picked B. You picked B.
0: Yeah, I just, I think B is a lot like A, and I think that Sandra did not take a position specifically about the science of studying conversation and how much of it is verbal and how much of it is nonverbal. So I don't know for sure that Sandra would agree with B. I think Sandra would for sure agree that it's possible sometimes in science to arrive at 61%, but she just didn't address specifically whether it's possible in this study of communication. So D is more exactly what I know Sandra has taken a position on. So I have to pick D. Okay. Do you think that makes sense?
1: It does make sense.
0: Cool. So my, my job is really just to make the light bulb go on as many times as I can. Um, if, if, you know, if, if you felt that one like click for you, then that's awesome that you've, you've learned something, you'll be less likely to miss a question like that in the future. And with logical reasoning, um, you know, it, it really is a matter of like grinding it out and just trying for one more question correct uh, next week, you know, next test you take, I'm going to try to get one more correct. Um, you should, the, the progress tends to be like slow and steady on the logical reasoning. So I would just encourage you to keep grinding it out. And, you know, you got 40 points on the last test. If you can get 41 on the next test, that's going to be awesome. So... I think we have time for one more evany what which one would you like to talk about
1: um 21.
0: 21. we'll get the other one some other time okay but right now number 21 uh, assuming assuming you find it helpful and you decide that you want to talk again driver says my friends say i will one day have an accident because i drive my sports car recklessly but i've done some research and apparently minivans and larger sedans have very low accident rates compared to sports cars. So, trading my sports car in for a minivan would lower my risk of having an accident. I'd like to know what you, what you thought about this one. What, what, what's your response to that? Or did you have a response to that?
1: I don't know. I just felt like he, he's addressing an issue that wasn't the cause of the problem.
0: Okay. I I like that. What what do you think could have been the cause of the problem?
1: Um he drives his sports car recklessly.
0: <laughs> yeah, he drives recklessly. Is it possible to drive a minivan recklessly? Uh,
1: um yeah.
0: I I would think so. I mean, maybe it's a little harder or maybe it's a little less likely. But if this guy thinks that, you know, if he thinks that just because there's a correlation between minivans and safer driving, does that necessarily mean that there's causation between minivans and and lower accident rates?
1: It does not.
0: Right, because who drives minivans?
1: Family people.
0: Yeah, moms and dads and people with kids in the back and people who drive very carefully. So this guy, he drives his sports car like a dick. There's nothing stopping him from also driving his minivan like a dick. And that would be my response to this guy's argument. And I, I really do think, did, do you remember, did you have that reaction when you were, when you were reading it for the first time? Because if you did, you should have gotten it right.
1: Well, I picked C, which says it misinterprets evidence that a result is likely. Mm. is evidence that a result is certain.
0: Okay, so let me read the question stem for... Uh, the question is a flaw question. It says, The reasoning in the driver's argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that it what? And Ebony, you picked C. Misinterprets evidence that a result is likely as evidence that the result is certain. Um, I just don't think he did that. And I think here I would come up with like a little example of what he would have had to do in order to make see the correct answer. I think he would have needed to say, it is probable that it is going to be foggy today in San Francisco. Therefore I am sure it's going to be foggy today in San Francisco. Like usually it's so foggy that the tourists can't see the golden gate bridge. Therefore, when my aunt Margaret comes and visits, she definitely is not going to be able to see the bridge that would be misinterpreting evidence that a result is likely as evidence that the result is certain and i don't i just don't think that's exactly what the driver did here i like a a lot a says infers a cause from mere correlation and i think he did that for sure the evidence that he cited was a correlation between less accident rates and driving a minivan instead of a sport car. And then he went to causation from there. He said, oh, therefore, if I want to just make sure that I don't have accidents, I'll just switch from my sports car to a minivan. And those things do not have to be causally related. And I think that's the answer. Is, it an- is the answer A?
1: Yes.
0: Okay. Do you buy it? Yes. All right. You sure? Yes. All right. Uh, I really encourage you to push back if you don't understand something. You know that's okay. We you, we just need to get you to a good understanding on as many questions as we possibly can. And uh, if the light bulb's on, that's great, and we should just move on to the next question. But I do have to run. So uh, Ebony, we'll pick this up again, okay?
1: All right. Thank you so much.
0: Awesome. You're welcome. My pleasure. Talk to you soon.
1: All right, bye-bye. Okay, Bye. Bye. Goodbye.
0: So it's been about a week or so since we spoke, and you've done another practice test in the meantime. Um, you sent me an email. Why don't you just give uh, me an update on what you said in that email? Did
1: I say in that
0: email? Well, I've got it right in front of me, so I can remind <laughs> you. Um, you had three points. You said you're doing a lot better on the logical reasoning. Um, which is excellent, and we're going to talk about that today. We'll do some more logical reasoning questions from the June 2007 test. It says you also did better on the logic games. You've been watching my video explanations from my online course, and uh, you got through two and a half games, I guess, so you're up to 12 points on the logic games instead of nine. That's that's awesome. How have you been using those videos?
1: I'll um, do the whole test. And then I will, I mean, I'll score it. But before I look in the booklet to see like what I actually put, like, then I watch the videos to see the setup of it. Okay. And immediately after that, then I will redo the games based on how you set it up and redo because I don't want to like know what the correct answer is until you know what I'm saying
0: yeah no absolutely and
1: after I've looked at the setup and redone it and feel like I've mastered it then I'll go back and look at the questions because at that point it doesn't really matter what I missed originally as long as I got it right now and I understand it
0: now yeah I, th- I think that makes sense um one thing that you're doing there is a really pretty useful um I guess seven sage calls that blind review Where when you review your mistakes, you're not just looking at the right answer and trying to figure out why the right answer is right. Instead, you're just like redoing the questions with a fresh eye and and attempting it again. Um, Do you do that on the logical reasoning as well?
1: Um, I don't. Is that where that helped me on logical reasoning?
0: Yeah. um, I was working with a student yesterday and I noticed that she, on her paper when she would miss a question, she was like using a different colored pen and circling the correct answer. And then we were going back and reviewing the test and like the correct answer was just staring us in the face on all the questions as we were working through them. And I actually think that that interferes with your ability to really get the most out of learning from the question, because it's just so hard not to let your eye just go right to that correct answer and then start thinking about the correct answer and that's really an artificial process right that's not how it's going to happen on the actual test so with your logical reasoning what i would recommend you do is if you do a section of logical reasoning um you're using score sheets right like you're using scantron sheets while you're taking the test yes okay good um so you can just mark which ones you missed on that scantron And then you can go back to your test and you can review like, oh, well, I know I missed, you know, these six questions. I'm going to go back and review these six questions. But then when you review those questions, don't do it with knowing what the correct answer is. Just do it knowing that you missed it the first time and then kind of reevaluate and see if you can prove it to yourself, which answer must be the correct answer. And then when you're sure, then check the answer key and see if you're right. Does that make sense? Do you see the the Do you see the point of that? I do. Yeah, lots of times you'll actually find that you get it right the second time through, and if you do, if you get it right the second time through, then that is a pretty good suggestion that you you know you actually understand. Um, it's just it can be really um, hard to engage fully with the question if you're if you're staring at. Well, I know the answer is D. Okay. Um, so with my tutoring students and in my class, I I really just try to teach without the answers. I I always teach in front of the class without the answers, um, because I want to have to like reason my way through it fully. And I want to be sure that, you know, I'm explaining it to the point where I understand why the right answers are right. And then, uh, yeah, most of the time I'm right. Um, okay. Your email also said just a really quick thing here about testing. You said you always you notice that you always do worst on the first section talk to me a little bit about that
1: um yes well when I first reached out to you uh, I hadn't taken a practice test like in forever and I had taken the real lesson in two years so I pulled up my score sheets and on both of those I did really bad in the first section but I didn't remember you know anything about the tests and so I didn't really pay attention to that and Now, I notice it whenever I'm doing my logical reasoning sections. I'll get so frustrated because I'm like, why am I getting so much more in this section than I did in this section? like, I mean, they're the same thing. Um, And then I think, like, after that happened a few times, I was noticing that each time it was the first section that I did worse in.
0: Okay. Um, This is something that I hear fairly commonly. Um, my first suspicion is always, maybe this is just a small sample size issue. Um, have, but would you say that this has happened now like 10 times?
1: I don't think it's happened 10 times. Because I don't think I've done 10 full practice tests yet.
0: Okay. So then I wouldn't get too married to the idea that you always do worse on the first section. The LSAT is, um, there's a lot of areas where you can get trapped into thinking that things are happening that aren't really happening. They're just kind of an illusion based on um, small samples. So you know you don't you don't have to send yourself the message that I always do worse on the first section. Um, at least not yet. Maybe just keep an open mind and see if it continues to happen. The other thing that I would say is um, if you do prove it to yourself, you know if this keeps happening then that's something that you certainly have to get over because we can't afford to walk into the lsat um you know planning to do poorly on the first section that's not going to be a good uh, way to go so what some students do is they do a short warm-up before they do section one and this is something that you could try Um, i don't really encourage that everyone does it because it's like the day you know test day is already a pretty long day and i just don't know how long you want to make that day but if you need it you need it so um get yourself like what i would recommend is usually just redo some very easy questions uh you could you know maybe just take the first 10 out of this june 2007 test that we're going to look at and uh know that'll be like your warm-up questions maybe not even the first 10 maybe just like the first five or something and before you sit down for your timed test sections you do those five questions do them untimed and you know don't really worry about correcting them or anything but just reason your way through them make sure that you're understanding them and then maybe that will get you into the like the LSAT mindset I've also heard people doing the same thing with logic games. So you could try that as well. You know, one or two really easy logic games that you know you really understand. And then just kind of read the rules, combine the rules together, work your way through creating some kind of a setup, answer a few of the questions, just to get into that LSAT mode. So you can give that a shot, but like I say, um, I think it'd be even better if you didn't have to do that because your your uh energy's gonna be limited on the day of the actual test. So maybe try it next time and see what happens. Yes. Cool. Okay. Go
1: ahead. So I think the reason it stuck out to me on this last test that I made or uh-huh. took was because in one section of of the questions that I attempted, in one section I got like seven wrong and the other one i got two wrong and Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the section where i got two wrong it was the same error that i made twice and then in the other section i had made that same error again like three times but then i made all these other stupid errors that i i don't usually make it was just me not reading and not paying attention and being stupid (laughs) and so i it's all it uh, it was just frustrating because i'm like I don't have a problem making seven mistakes if it's the same thing and I can just say, well, I'm weak at this, but I have issues with making stupid mistakes for no reason, you
0: know? Yeah. Well, you and everybody else, and (laughs) you should probably, you know, take it a little bit easy on yourself. You're, uh, you're working hard and you're doing the best you can. So, um, probably doesn't do a lot of good to be calling yourself stupid. You know, you're not (laughs) stupid. that's not the most helpful way to think about it anyway you you know you lost uh, lost attention maybe you lost focus you uh, weren't reading as carefully as you should have been, and you made some casual mistakes. I guess we could call the mistakes stupid, but let's not call Ebony stupid because I don't know that that's useful. Um, what is this common mistake that you 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 wrote about? You said you made it a couple times in one of the sections, and then you made it again later. What what type of an? You said I was able to find one critical error that I made four or five times. What was that? Okay,
1: it was that. I would read a question. It may be sufficient and necessary assumption, but I think it may be broader than that. Like, I would read a question that would say, strengthen it, and I would be trying to, like, prove it. Or I would read something that would say, weaken it, and I would be trying to destroy it. And so, with that, it would take me forever, because I've crossed off all the answers, because none of the answers prove the statement, And so not only was it, you know, I'm not getting the right answer, but it was a huge, like, time suck for me, especially if it happened in the
0: beginning, because I didn't want to skip any in the beginning. Okay. I mean, what you're doing there sounds pretty good to me, frankly. If I'm asked to weaken a question, I do want the answer that destroys the argument. And if I'm asked to strengthen an argument, I do want the answer that proves the argument. I mean, I might not find it every time, but that's the standard of proof that I'm going for. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for the best possible strengthener or the best possible weakener. So I frequently would eliminate all five answer choices because I was looking for something too good. But if I have high expectations, that helps me to avoid all of those traps in the answer choices. So I would just be a little bit careful about about that, I mean, there are plenty of examples of LSAT questions that ask you to strengthen the argument, and the correct answer is actually a sufficient assumption of the argument. Uh, the correct answer actually proves the argument to be true. I've seen questions like that. And I've seen weakened questions where the correct answer just completely destroys the argument. So I don't really think of that as a critical error. I frequently say to students that if you're not occasionally eliminating all five answer choices, you're just really not being critical enough. Um, But I don't know, you're saying it's taking a lot of time though, huh? Yeah,
1: but and then too, so that might not be the worst idea, because if I do that, eventually I can probably find the right answer, even if it takes a long time. But the issue is that, just overall whenever I would choose the right answer it would be because the answer was too strong or t- too weak and it, it wasn't always that I found some that I was looking for something that destroyed it if I only needed to weaken it sometimes it would be the opposite like okay. it needed to destroy it and I only weakened it
0: so that that just sounds like maybe you're not totally solid yet on your question types um, and we'll we'll work on that so you want to get into some um, specific questions from the June two thousand and seven test?
1: Uh, I just have one question, and I don't have to read the material. Okay, go ahead. Um, on one question, the the phrasing in the question stem was um, prop like which of the following can be properly inferred. Uh-huh. Does that mean which of the following must be true?
0: Well, yeah, read read the whole question stem though. Just read. You can read the whole, um, not the argument, but just read the question. The whole, the whole part of the question.
1: Okay. It says, which of the following can be properly inferred from the historian's statement?
0: Okay. Which one of the following can be properly inferred from the historian's historian's statement? And what type of a question do you suspect that is?
1: Well, I don't know what I thought at first, but <laughs> but now I think it's. Um, must be true
0: yeah that's right it's just must be true Um, this is the type of question that especially people who are naturally kind of good at the LSAT uh, miss this question a lot because I, I used to miss this question a lot because I used to think that I had to like infer something I thought that I had to be like Sherlock Holmes and you know do like a really I thought that the correct answer had to be interesting or surprising or like a fancy leap of logic or something but no this is just all that is is which one of the following must be true and on a must be true question i'm really going to just look for the most boring most obvious answer the one that has to be true based on the other information that i was given yeah. You, you get yourself in trouble by trying to, you know, quote unquote, infer something on a question like that. Instead, just in your head, just translate that into must be true. And then that's it. Okay. All right. All right. So we're looking at the June 2007 test and you got some questions. So go ahead.
1: I'm in the second section. Okay. Logical reasoning section.
0: Again, just for the listeners, if you Google June 2007 LSAT, you'll find this test, and it's freely available. Um, what question you want to talk about? Okay, 13. Number 13 in section 2. Therapist, talking about cognitive psychotherapy. Okay. All right, here we go. Therapist says, cognitive psychotherapy focuses on changing a patient's conscious beliefs, Thus, cognitive psychotherapy is likely to be more effective at helping patients overcome psychological problems than are forms of psychotherapy that focus on changing unconscious beliefs and desires, since only conscious beliefs are under the patient's direct conscious control. Wow. So first off, what do you think about that argument?
1: I mean... I didn't have a problem with the argument. It made
0: sense to me. So there's your problem right there. Um, You need to be having a problem with these arguments because that argument doesn't add up. Now, that argument is not flawed necessarily, but it does have a hole in it. And your job is to find the hole. So... It's helpful here maybe to just reorganize the argument. Think about what the evidence is and what the conclusion is. What would you say the conclusion of this argument is?
1: Um, That cognitive psychotherapy is more effective than other forms of psychotherapy.
0: Okay. Uh, And how come?
1: Because um, cognitive focuses on conscious beliefs and other forms focus on unconscious beliefs.
0: Why does that matter?
1: That's the whole.
0: Well, the argument does present a little bit more more evidence. Uh, that very last line there, it says, since only conscious beliefs are under the patient's direct conscious control. So that's part of their argument, and you can't ignore that. That was evidence that they presented. So here's here's how the argument actually proceeds. It says, if I'm just kind of just like kind of paraphrase it and kind of rearrange it, but the argument says cognitive psychotherapy focuses on conscious beliefs, and only conscious beliefs are under the patient's direct conscious control. And that's why cognitive psychotherapy is more effective at helping patients overcome psychological problems than other forms of psychotherapy which focus on unconscious beliefs, which are not under the patient's control. Does that make sense? Yes. All right. So now the hole in the argument, I think, has to do with this idea of control. What does control have to do with anything? That was mentioned in one premise, but it was just kind of left there. And that's the loose end that I would really like to tie up. I would would like to connect that into the argument in order to make this argument better. So the argument, uh, the question says, which one of the following, if true, would most strengthen the therapist's argument? I would would like an answer. I'm going to make a prediction here. I would like an answer that says, therapy that focuses on beliefs that are under the patient's direct conscious control is more likely to help patients overcome psychological problems. Do you see what I'm getting at there? Like that, I want to. I want. I want the correct answer to say control in it.
1: Because mm-hmm.
0: I felt like that was a, a gap in the argument. Now I might be right or wrong, but that's what I would be looking for. Especially if this were a an assumption question, that's what I would be looking for. Because it seems like control was mentioned, but then it wasn't really tied back into the argument. Anyway, A says, psychological problems are frequently caused by unconscious beliefs that could be changed with the aid of psychotherapy. Um, That would weaken the argument, if anything, because the conclusion was uh, psychotherapy, cognitive psychotherapy, which focuses on conscious beliefs, is more helpful. So it's not A. B, it's difficult for any form of psychotherapy to be effective without focusing on mental states that are under the patient's direct conscious control. And that, I think, is going to be the answer. Do you remember what you picked?
1: Um, I picked D.
0: D but says, oh, go ahead.
1: Circled B, and then it has a line through
0: it, but anyway. Okay. So you, you were going back and forth maybe between B and D. D says... No form of psychotherapy that focuses on changing the patient's unconscious beliefs and desires can be effective unless it also helps change beliefs that are under the patient's direct conscious control. I like it that it's talking about direct conscious control. Um, but D is just, you know what? D is just weird to me because D is talking about forms of psychotherapy that would change both conscious and unconscious thoughts or beliefs. And just the argument, the argument made a distinction between those two. The argument said cognitive psychotherapy focuses on conscious beliefs, whereas other forms of psychotherapy focus on unconscious beliefs. And because conscious beliefs are under your control, that's why cognitive psychotherapy is more useful. D is just kind of crossing the streams. D has a lot of words from the argument, but it's D's presenting this new idea of, well, well, what about if we do both? What about if we have both? What if we affect both conscious and unconscious beliefs? And that's just not what I was looking for. B is really pretty pretty much right on target for what I was looking for. D B says, um, yeah, you, you really do have to focus on beliefs that are under your conscious control, if you want to change, you know, if you want to help people get past these problems. So I like B a lot. Okay. If you're not already doing so, Ebony, I would recommend that you get in the habit of covering up the answer choices and trying to make a prediction before you look at the answer choices. Um, It's just going to make your life easier if you can start predicting these answers in advance. Here. Just to recap, you know, I think your, your problem here really was that you just kind of didn't see that gap in the argument. If you find yourself agreeing with the argument, if you find yourself going like, yeah, that, that makes sense, that sounds like a good argument, um, that's almost always wrong on the LSAT. So I'd like you to get just a little more critical and, you know, argue, push back on this therapist and say, well, hold on a second, you've got some holes in your argument, let's talk about those. Because more often than not, that's going to be related to the correct answer.
1: So in this argument, the whole was... What was the whole specifically?
0: Well, it was this idea of why does conscious control matter? And you, I guess you kind of saw that. I mean, you did pick an answer here that was related to this concept of conscious control. But the argument brought up conscious control as a premise of its argument but never connected conscious control to anything else? So my objection when I read this argument, my objection was, well, wait a minute. Why does conscious control matter? Why, do, why, do we, why does psychotherapy need to be working on beliefs that you have direct conscious control over in order to be effective? Why does that matter? That was a hole in the argument. That's an assumption that the argument made. Okay. And B makes that, ex- makes that assumption explicit, which does strengthen the argument. Yes. All
1: right.
0: Great. Good. Another one? Um, eight. Same Same section, number 18. An editorialist says, In all cultures, it is almost universally accepted that one has a moral duty to prevent members of one's family from being harmed. Thus, few would deny that if a person is known by the person's parents to be falsely accused of a crime, it would be morally right for the parents to hide the accused from the police. Whoa! Hence, it is also likely to be widely accepted that it is sometimes morally right to obstruct the police in their work. Hmm. What do you think there? Can you, can you argue with that? Yes. <laughs> okay. What would you say?
1: I would say that... The first, the first part of the argument when it talks about protecting your family from being harmed. Yeah. Um, and then the conclusion is saying, like, hide them from the police. And just because you're... That, it's not parallel. Hiding someone from the police is not protecting them from harm.
0: That's a... Yeah, I mean, that's a good point, right? You could actually... I guess in some cases... Um, you you could be protecting your family member by hiding them from the police, but it's just as likely that you're actually harming them by hiding them from the police.
1: Yeah, and I mean, just on a basic level, the police are not there to harm the person, you know? They're not prosecuting them, you know? They're just <clears throat> the police. They're not going to kill them or beat them. I mean, they they might, but, you know, generally speaking, that's... That's not. It's not harmful for someone to um, be accused of a crime.
0: Yeah, and that's not really even our job to say whether that's true or false. Um, our job is simply to point out that just because you have a duty to protect your family member does not mean that you specifically have a duty to do anything necessarily. Um, this argument needed to say police are dangerous you know something like that would have to be in the argument in order for me to buy this idea that we have to protect our family member from the police or you know hide our family member from the police so that's a really there's a big hole again in this argument the argument seems to be assuming that the police are there to harm your family member and that if you hide your family member from the police you will be protecting your family member from harm
1: and um. And I also have issues where it says few would deny okay. that it's morally right. You know what I'm saying? Like, I just think that that's a huge assumption and they don't really provide any.
0: Okay, so that's a, an interesting point. You're you're looking at the beginning of the second sentence, thus few would deny. So it's, it's saying like, because almost everyone accepts that we have a moral duty to pre- prevent members of one's family from being harmed, Thus, reasoning from that, we can conclude that the that few would deny that, that almost everyone would agree that if a person is known to be falsely accused, then it would be morally right to hide them from the police. Yeah, and I don't think it's the the few, that, the few would deny phrase that really bugs me there, but it's just, I do get off the boat at that point. Right. I accept the first sentence of this argument to be true, but I do not think that the second sentence of the argument follows logically from the first.
1: I mean, some people might be pragmatic. Maybe they want to prove the justice system the justice system works, and you know they'll get off because America's great.
0: You know. Well, and if you're falsely accused, then why would you not just prove your innocence? Right. I mean. Yeah. Now, there's, I'm not saying that that is or is not the right course of action. I'm just saying that for argument's sake, it does not seem clear to me that hiding someone from the police is going to be the best way to go. All right. So with that, I, I on this one, it sounds like you have a really a pretty good handle on the argument. So let's see if we can answer the question now. Um, the reasoning in the editorialist's argument is most vulnerable to criticism on the grounds that this argument what... Here, I think it's a... Well, you tell me. What type of, what type of a question do you think this is? Uh, flaw. Yep. Uh-huh, I would put it in the flaw category. I'm not sure if I've seen this exact category of flaw before. This is not like a really super common, you know, confusing a sufficient condition with a necessary condition or confusing correlation with causation. This is something else. So here... I don't know if I could predict it. I might just have to look at the answer choices. Did you have a couple that you went back and forth on here? I don't
1: know. I don't even know if I got it wrong, but there's a question mark. So whatever I picked, I know I didn't understand why I picked it.
0: Okay. Let's just go through the answers one at a time. Flaw questions are really good for reviewing because the wrong answers, you can very frequently say, well, in order to make this the right answer, here's what the argument would have had to have said. And that can be a really useful tool for better understanding the way the test works. So let's see, maybe we can do that with a couple of these answer choices. A says, the argument utilized a single type of example for the purpose of justifying a broad generalization. What do you think about that?
1: I don't think so.
0: Yeah, I don't think so either. That's the, you know, uh, it's raining today and today's Tuesday, therefore it always rains on Tuesday. That's just not the argument. That's just not the flaw that I think the editorialist made here, so I don't think the answer is A. B, did the argument fail to consider the possibility that other moral principles would be widely recognized as overriding any obligation to protect a family member from harm? What do you think? Um, I
1: think that sounds good. That was the first thing I thought was that they took a principle and then they misapplied it to the situation
0: um okay b specifically says fails to consider that there might be other moral principles that would override what's what's that mean or or what would that other moral principle be
1: um like if they believe that you shouldn't break the law in order to protect your family members
0: right exactly so this is a. Com- I think the answer is probably B, and this this is a fairly common pattern. Um, I've seen this logic before on the LSAT. Just because you have a duty to do something doesn't mean that you might not also have another duty, which would conflict with that first duty. So exactly what you said, Ebony. If suppose that we felt like we had a moral obligation to tell the truth or suppose we had a moral obligation to obey the law. Either one of those things might keep you from hiding your family member from the police. So I think B is a pretty, I think B looks like it's on target to me. But let's go through C, D, and E. If we can get rid of C, D, and E, then we'll know for sure that the answer is B. So C says, presumes without providing justification that allowing the police to arrest an innocent person assists rather than obstructs justice. What do you think?
1: Um, that is what I picked, but I, um, now that I'm looking at it, um, I see two things. It doesn't say that it assists justice. It says that it, appre- it protects the family members. So that's just not what the argument said.
0: Perfect. That, that's enough right there to get rid of answer choice C. Um, you need to remember on flaw questions that they're kind of in a way related to must-be-true questions in that you really need to be picking an answer choice that you know for sure happened in the argument. And since this argument, you said it perfectly, since this argument was not talking about justice, we can't accuse them of what C is accusing them of. Okay, moving on. D., takes for granted that there is no moral obligation to obey the law.
1: It doesn't say (laughs) this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I can see how D is similar to B in a way, but B was stated much more softly, you know, fails to consider the possibility that there might be other moral principles. And D specifically says, takes for granted that there is no moral obligation to obey the law, the law was actually never even mentioned in the argument, right? Hi- hiding people from police. I think we know that to be against the law in our own mind, but it didn't say that in the argument.
1: And then two, and this is something I took this a while ago. I, I realized how much I've learned since then, That's but, great. Two, but also in this one, it says that um, no moral obligation, which is, really wide, and in, there, and in the ar- actual argument it says it's sometimes morally right. And so the argument is more like vague, like sometimes this is okay, and then the answer choice is saying, no, this is always okay, and there's no more ob- moral obligation of law, period.
0: Okay, let's take a look at E takes for granted that the parents mentioned in the example are not mistaken about their child's innocence.
1: That's not relevant. I agree with you. That's a premise.
0: Yeah, it was a premise of the argument that, well, I guess it wasn't a premise of the argument, but it said the argument was trying to say, therefore we... People would agree that if your child is falsely accused, then you should hide him from the police. And I would say, whoa, wait a minute. Whether or not he's falsely accused really is not really doesn't matter. The point is, should we be hiding people from police or not? And does that actually protect people when you do hide them from police? So yeah, I think you're right that E is basically just irrelevant. Cool. So we're going with B. All right. Well, that's that's awesome that you feel like you've learned. That's that's really great. Wanna do one more? Mm.
1: Okay, 24, I didn't actually get to this question, but I read the stem and I wanted to know what your strategy is for these types of questions.
0: Okay, first thing is I got to read the argument, deal with the argument, and then we'll get to the question stem when it's time to get to the question stem. So question 24, sociologist says, romantics who claim that people are not born evil but may be made evil by the imperfect institutions that they form, cannot be right. That seems like the conclusion. Here comes the evidence. The word for means, you know, because, means here comes the evidence. Well, it's because they misunderstand the causal relationship between people and their institutions. After all, institutions are mere collections of people. So therefore, it's not true that people are not born evil, but may be made evil by the imperfect institutions that they form. Because if the institution was evil, it's because the people were evil in the first place, seems to be the principle of this argument. Um, The question says, which one of the following principles, if valid, would most help to justify the sociologists' argument all right, so what was your, your question was just what's my strategy on this? Yes. Well, what type of a, uh, what type of a question is it?
1: Would most help to justify, um, strengthen?
0: Yeah, sure, it's just a strengthen question. So all I have to do is just help this sociologist out somewhat. The evidence, again, is institutions are just collections of people Uh, So these romantics, these people who say that people are not born evil, but may be made evil by institutions, they must be wrong. Why are they wrong? Because institutions are just collections of people. I guess, thinking about it again, I can make an argument against this argument, and I know we're strengthening the argument. So people might find it strange that I'm trying to attack the argument, but... If I was this sociologist's attorney, my job would be to try to point out the holes in his argument so that I could make his argument better. So I do see a hole here. So I'm I'm on the attack. And I, I would try to stay on the attack almost always. My attack here is, well, I get it that institutions are made up of people. But isn't it possible that good people could create an institution and that that institution something about that institution could then turn evil even though the people within the institution are not evil does that make sense to you
1: um yes
0: the like the stanford prison experiment brings to mind do you know the stanford prison experiment
1: uh yeah the zimbardo
0: Oh, sorry, is that true? <laughs> yeah, I
1: know what it is.
0: <laughs> okay. Um, so point being, you know, you could take perfectly well-meaning people, and if you put them into a certain type of situation, they might turn really evil really fast. So that's the question that I would be asking this sociologist if I was his attorney. And maybe to make the argument better, then we would need a premise that was something like, Oh, yeah, no. uh, Institutions never turn bad after they're created. Like, if good people create the institution, then it'll never turn bad. I think something like that would make the argument better. You still with me? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, so let's see if we can find it. I I don't know if that's going to actually be the answer or not, but that's what I would be thinking before I looked at the answer choices. The point of making that prediction is not necessarily to exactly predict the correct answer every time, the point of making that prediction is to arm myself against all of the very tricky wrong answers that I'm about to read. You know, I have a pretty good idea what I would what I would like to find an answer that says I, I want it to say, yeah, institutions never go bad. Um, armed with that, it's going to help me to like get past some of these traps. So let's see. A people acting together in institutions can do more good or evil. Than can people acting individually. I just don't think that's what I'm looking for. B. Institutions formed by people are inevitably imperfect. Well, if anything, I think B would maybe weaken the argument. Because B would be like... uh yeah people are good, and they create these institutions, and then the institutions go bad and that's exactly what's that's exactly why it's possible for people to be turned to bad by their institutions so i don't I don't yeah, I don't think it's b c people should not be overly optimistic in their view of individual human beings that seems irrelevant to me. I don't know the argument was not about whether people are good or bad or whether whether we should be optimistic or not. I don't think that's the answer. D, a society's institutions are the surest gauge of that society's values. I just don't know where values came in. You know, that, that seems irrelevant to me. E says, the whole does not determine the properties of the things that compose it. And that is not what I predicted, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be the correct answer. Can you see why that helps the sociologist's argument?
1: Um, Yes, because in order for the romantic to be true, then it must be the whole, like the institution that's affecting the people. And he's saying basically the institution doesn't determine the properties of the
0: people. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. The romantics really want to believe that institutions are capable of turning people bad. If E is true, the whole, the institution does not determine the properties of the things, the people that compose it, E really attacks those romantics. So I think the sociologist would love to put E into his argument against the romantics. Makes sense?
1: It does make sense.
0: All right, Ebony, um, this was really great. Please continue to do tests and keep in touch.
1: Okay, thank you so much,
0: Nate. You're welcome. Take care. Bye.